You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. At times like these, it's important to listen to the doctors. Now, everyone has an agenda, from politicians to business leaders to talking heads on television. But doctors are special in that their sole focus is on saving lives. In this conversation, Pedro DaCosta speaks with Dr. Dina Grayson, whose research on COVID-19 treatments are pivotal to the ongoing efforts to save lives and stop this pandemic in its tracks. She also shares her thoughts on herd immunity, vaccines, and she also evaluates the different responses of governments worldwide. I found this conversation fascinating and valuable, and I hope you do too. Welcome to Real Visions, the interview. I'm Pedro da Costa. I'm really excited to be joined today by Dr. Dina Grayson. I spend my life interviewing financial and economic experts, but they all tell me we need to listen to the doctors now, so I'm really pleased to have her. She's not only a medical doctor, she's also a biochemist, and she's, importantly for our purposes today, an expert in viral pandemic threats, uh, of which we are all living a nightmarish one today. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Grayson. Well, thanks so much for having me, Pedro. First of all, how are you doing? What are things like in, in Florida as uh, your governor uh, toys with reopening? And uh, how's your family doing? Well, thanks for asking. You know, we've got all five kids in the house. So uh, <laughs> times are, the lockdown life is hectic, as I think most uh, Americans are experiencing. And, you know, both my husband and I uh, work from home now. And uh, so it makes for tight quarters. But uh, luckily, everyone's healthy and doing well. Um, you know, living in Florida is, uh, I'm a native Floridian, so I do love my state, but there is a reason there's something called hashtag Florida. And I think that governor DeSantis, unfortunately is embodying that a bit, you know, so thus far where we live in central Florida, you know, in, in the Orlando area, there have been a number of cases and there's good local leadership, um, that is very unlikely to reopen, uh, you know, as the governor of course has announced that the state will reopen. Um, now, having said that, I will say that uh, Governor DeSantis did recognize that there is still an ongoing hot zone in South Florida, namely in the Miami, Broward County, Palm Beach areas with a number of cases still still going on. And I, I do think that does underscore that when we think about these lockdowns, when we think about these uh, surges of waves of infection, you know, a wave isn't static. It doesn't just stay in one place. It moves. And not every every place is the same. So there are some areas of the country potentially where you could think about starting to relax some of the lockdowns. But again, you've really got to think about testing, testing, testing. And we all know, you know, where are those tests? We're still just ridiculously short on testing. So if we could take a step back, our viewers, as you know, are primarily uh, financially focused uh, and I just wanted to what if you could tell us a little bit about your background and the research that you've done uh, and why you've become such a hot commodity and it was so so hard to get you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that, Pedro. And again, I'm really uh, excited to be here, uh, my friend. And so my background, I have two doctorates. I'm a medical doctor um, as well as a PH, have a PhD in biochemistry and really relevant to the ongoing uh, coronavirus pandemic. 
I spent nearly a decade developing medicines um, to treat these viral pandemic threat, what we call broad spectrum antivirals. So when you think about antibiotics for a bacteria, we have these antibiotics that can hit and kill a lot of different bugs. But no such thing, um, at least to date, has existed for viruses, where you could have one, one drug that could treat many bugs. So starting uh, actually a decade ago, I started working uh, in the biotech world to develop new medicines, actually set up and led a collaboration, uh, multiple collaborations with the Department of Defense and the National Institutes of Health, uh, most relevantly on a drug called galadesivir, which is a drug that's being developed by BioCrisp. Now, galadesivir was really the first in that same class of drugs as remdesivir that everyone's hearing about, as well as another that drug. Boosted that boosted the stock chaos. market recently, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, boy, which we'll, we'll talk a bit about that, I'm sure, about, you know, the relative utility of these drugs. Uh, and there's another drug called favipiravir, which is approved in Japan for the treatment of, in, of influenza. So essentially how these drugs work is they block the ability of RNA viruses to make RNA copies, RNA to RNA, something that humans can't do. So when you're developing a medicine, that's really a great drug target because we're not going to hit anything in the humans. Uh, so there's sort of a safety window, if you will. So the nice thing about these drugs, these antivirals, is there's that idea that you could have that one drug that could hit many bugs that have that same RNA to RNA copying. And that appears to be the case for remdesivir, galadesivir, the drug that I mentioned is now in clinical testing for the deadly coronavirus actually in Brazil. Uh, and then favipiravir has also been studied, at least uh, some data has been released from China. So I think that all three of these drugs and certainly remdesivir, everyone's talking about, there's some you know, early data that certainly look, that look promising, but I mean, these drugs are not going to be the be all end all. This doesn't mean, does not mean we can just relax. Everything's going to be cool in the gang and we can go back to normal. So before I even ask you about the vaccine potential and stage, I want to ask you about where you think we are in this pandemic um, in terms of the global cycle, how far it might go, the potential for a second wave. Um, are we halfway there, a tenth of the way there? Are we past the worst? Where are we? Well, we're past the beginning of the beginning. Um, I knew in December that a pandemic was coming. And then in, I, you know, I, at least certainly based upon the information I was hearing from China, but you have to sort of take that not with a grain of salt, but like, you know, a bucket of salt. Mm -hmm. um, but by mid-January, mid it was very, very clear that this coronavirus checked every box for a pandemic threat. So why? It's extremely contagious. It can cause serious illness or death in otherwise healthy people, as we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing people in their 30s dying of strokes, of heart attacks. It's a very bizarre virus. And then lastly, of course, there really are certainly no vaccines. And until yesterday, there were no proven treatments for this deadly virus. So that's why it's so dangerous. And as far as where we are, you know, we haven't even ended the first wave. You know, mm -hmm. the, the number of new cases in the United States has plateaued. But unlike other countries, if you look at Western Europe or again, I, I don't want to look at China so much because really who knows what the real numbers are, mm -hmm. but other countries as well. You know, in general, what we've seen is that, you know, there's this peak, but then the number of new cases starts to decline. And we're really not seeing that yet here in the United States. So, you know, will there be another wave? Um, I would at this point say there's going to be another surge on top of what we're already exist, you know, is already existing, which is 20 plus thousand new cases each day. Now, my expectation, and I've been saying this for many months since January, Pedro, is that 
I do believe that this coronavirus is likely to come in waves. Um, I predicted that the Southern Hemisphere would become the new hot zone when their flu season starts. And guess what's happening? Of course, we're seeing Brazil and Ecuador just light up, unfortunately. And that's because these coronaviruses, like influenza, these respiratory viruses, they tend to spread a lot more easily in winter. So as we are Excuse here in, you know, exiting our winter, which is our flu season, the conditions are less favorable for this virus to spread. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't spread, as we're seeing. We're still seeing new cases. Uh, it just means it's a little more difficult for this virus to spread. But this virus is extremely, extremely contagious. So what I think will happen as we head into fall, and especially as we're loosening these lockdowns, which I think we're going to see even over the summer, some mini waves, if you will, in places that start lightening up on these uh, lockdowns. Uh, but I do think that come the fall, this virus is going to boomerang back from the Southern Hemisphere. And I think the second wave is going to be much, much worse. Very similar to what we saw with the 1918 um, great pandemic with the influenza pandemic, where 80% of the people who died in the United States during that pandemic died in the second wave of infections. And unfortunately, I think that's what we're looking at unless we have you know, a vaccine, unless we, you know, continue these really rigorous lockdowns. I mean, they're just, we don't have a lot to protect ourselves. A bit of personal history. It turns out we, we found out during this process that my great-grandfather died in his 20s of the Spanish, so-called Spanish flu, all the way down in Rio de Janeiro in 1918. So wow, so that's wow. how global and, you know, uh, everywhere it was. So to your point, how do these countries' health systems in places like Brazil and Ecuador, how do they hold up? Uh, if we're, we're already uh, rickety up here, what happens in, in places like, and also in, in, in African nations where, that are starting to get hit as well? Well, I think starting with Africa, that's been one of my great fears. I mean, there's just, there, there literally is in many places, not even, you know, forget healthcare for a moment. We have people that are living in places where they cannot even wash their hands which we know, look, soap and water, soap is this virus's kryptonite. It's one of our best defenses. So that's why when people think, oh gosh, just wash your hands. Okay, roll my eyes. No, really, washing your hands is, is it, it will destroy this virus on your hands. So really, really critical. So then on top of that, we have places that are have extreme poverty, no access to healthcare, not even little access to healthcare, no healthcare, no testing. So what really is happening in Sub-Saharan Africa? I don't think we really know. I mean, you know, until unfortunately and tragically we start seeing dead bodies lining the streets, I don't think we are going to know. And certainly what we're seeing in South America is harrowing. I mean, Ecuador only has, you know, hundreds of reported deaths, but we know that the real death toll is much, much higher because of the, the people being buried. Um, same with Brazil. I mean, Brazil is a disaster. And unfortunately, as you know, the Brazilian president just uh, recently, you know, after record number of deaths over well over 450 deaths in a single day, he's just like, well, so what, you know, what do you want me to do about it? I, you know, this is also, unfortunately, you know, he's been a denier, he's been a, pa a pandemic denier and, and now the Brazilian people are paying and, you know, gosh, you know, you know, the system in Brazil, the healthcare infrastructure, it was, you know, rickety at best in some place and certainly in parts of the country especially in many places. Yeah. And especially in these, you know, these cities, this, you know, this city right near the Amazon, you know, where the system already was overwhelmed. And now you have people that are just, you know, 
if you need a ventilator and there's no ventilator, you die. And so it is, it's harrowing. So as, as bad as this has been in the United States and this, this virus is exposing every single weakness and flaw in our healthcare system in every single country. So you see certain countries like Germany, which has an excellent healthcare system, they've been able to manage this virus and actually their mortality rate has been relatively low. Even within Europe, compare that to the UK, not as good of a healthcare system, right? Now we look at the United States. Who are the people really dying in the United States? Well, it's people of color, people that are lower socioeconomic status that don't have that same access to healthcare and also live in more crowded areas, have to take public transit, greater risk to get the virus. We're seeing the same thing happen now, unfortunately, in other countries. And presumably a lot of lower income uh, Americans have to continue to work their jobs. They're not able to work from home uh, and maybe lack access to, to adequate health care. Uh, you nailed it. That's exactly right. And, and if you look in the areas of this country where we see a number of people, for example, in New York, there was a study that was done looking at a subway line, zip codes, where the, the highest rate of infection were, were occurring in the city as well as in the outer boroughs out to Long Island. And you could actually see a heat map along the subway line. So the people that are taking the subway, they're getting on these crowded cars. I mean, that is a literal dream for, you know, a cauldron for this virus to spread, a crowded subway car. You cannot dream up a more nightmare scenario. I mean, everyone knows you go in a subway car, it's the air is kind of stale. That's right. You're breathing other people's air. That means you're also breathing their germs. How would you rate the American response in terms of you know, how much of this was avoidable? There's a lot of, you know, you, you come from, a, we can talk a little bit about your political background. You do come from a, a, a political place. You run for office. Uh, and so I'd love to talk about your politics. But, but before we get to that, how much of what we're suffering is, is because of a deficient response as opposed to just what was naturally going to happen, especially given that other countries are suffering some of the same patterns, including places like Italy and Spain that maybe have better health systems? Well, I give the administration an, a, a grade of an F. Um, they have handled this extremely poorly. I would look at a country like Australia, New Zealand, okay? You know, they have done a fantastic job of, you know, really preparing for this virus. Now, they did have a slight advantage of being in the Southern Hemisphere, all right? So they, they, they're just entering their flu season. Uh, but they have been very aggressive. And if you look at the, the governments in Australia, right-wing government versus New Zealand, left-wing government, but yet they're following the scientists. What we had here, and again, I warned of this, and I, experts like me were screaming from the rooftops for testing, including Trump's own former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb. He and I are on opposite ends of the political spectrum. He wrote a, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal in late January, screaming for testing. And I was cheering from the rooftops. I mean, he and I follow each other on Twitter. We're he's been pretty amazing on this. I've watched him on CNBC and other places. I mean, he's been on point, yeah. He's generally been on point, although he was very opposed to lockdowns, I will say that. I, I, I wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe in early March calling for widespread, massive lockdowns in the United States. And had we locked down when I called for it, 90%, 90% of the deaths could have been prevented. That's, that is tens of thousands of American lives. So what happened, you know, is Mr. Trump the only person to blame? No, but the buck stops with him. He was a denier. He, he repeatedly lied to the American people. And this is, I, I, I am promising you, this is not politics. And I'll 
I'll, I'll come back to that because I've criticized a very prominent person on the left as well. This is about public health. I mean, I, I am a physician, scientist, expert in viral pandemic threats, first and foremost, and I'm going to follow the evidence. And it was very, very clear that we were having, this virus was spreading like wildfire across our country, completely undetected. I mean, once you see that first case, that means there's hundreds, if not thousands of cases, because as we know, many people are asymptomatic, up to 60%. Then you have to get sick enough to actually go to the hospital. Well, I mean, if you get the flu, do you go to the hospital? No, most people have a relatively self-contained illness. They stay at home. Then the hospital has to recognize this isn't like flu. Then there has to be a test available. So you think about all those steps. And then we finally had that first case identified uh, in Washington state. How many hundreds, if not thousands of people were infected? That We know that's the case in New York. First case identified, experts think that there were probably 10,000 people infected in the state of New York. So that's the problem. We had denial, denial, denial. Oh, there's going to be 15. There's only 15 cases. Like a miracle, it's soon going to be zero, right? Uh, no, we're now over a million cases and the dead bodies are piling up. And we know that the real death toll is much higher, likely double what was being reported. So, I mean, we had an opportunity to act. These viruses, they're like, think of like a snowball going downhill. And the later you act, you are dead, dead, dead. They, this virus is winning. Now, these lockdowns have helped. They're a very crude tool. And no one wants to lock down. I don't want to lock down. My kids don't want to lock down. No one wants to. And the problem, though, is, Pedro, is the later you act, the less effective it is. And actually, the more radical and aggressive you have to be in these lockdowns and the longer they have to last. And we're seeing that now. You know, so where are we now failed? in that balance in, that, in terms of the economic toll? We're watching, you know, jobless claims just surge. Uh, we're going to have what is likely to be not just a recession, but perhaps a depression on our hands. Uh, what is there a trade-off between economic activity and public health, or you know, or do people really have to feel safe about their ability to go out, you know, without? extreme risk before the economy can take off again. Well, I think we should have the billionaires go out first. I mean, they're the ones screaming to reopen, right? But are they putting their lives on the line? Are they going to be that that restaurant worker? Are they going to be those bartenders, baristas, and and food servers, right? Those are the people that are on the front lines. We well, Mike Pence was out there without a mask in the middle of the hospital. That was maybe that's maybe that's a, a faith-based uh, approach. <laughs> Well, you know, the masks, I think one thing, one misnomer about these masks, the masks really protect others from you. Just putting a little mask on probably is not protecting you very much, but it's just decreasing the amount of germs that you're spewing out to the to others. So the fact that he was going into a hospital without wearing a mask, he's like, well, I had a coronavirus test. Well, when was that test, right? When was that test? Was it three days ago? You could be infected now. So, I, you know, totally irresponsible. And where are we now? We're at a, in a place still, Pedro, and again, this goes back to failure of the Trump administration. We don't have testing. We don't have enough testing to test the people who are suspected of having coronavirus, who are sick. I mean, day after day after day, we hear credible reports. This, this teacher that just died in, in New York, right? She begged for testing, 30 years old. She's dead. She couldn't get a test and she died. She died. We're seeing that over and over and over again. So when I hear this nonsense, anybody who wants a test can get a test. Well, maybe the billionaires can get a test. Or, you know, Maybe an NBA player can get a test. Maybe a tiger at a zoo can get a test. 
but my friend's mom can't get a test. Uh, a teacher can't get a test. And, and again, we want to reopen. I think there's this assumption that people are going to say, yay, and run out in the streets and run, run out to the clubs. There will be some people that will do that. But I, you know, people will die because of this. So I, I, you know, I don't think that people really understand that we are now looking at a new normal that is going to exist for not just until a vaccine is quote unquote available, but until we've achieved that herd immunity. And we, and in order to open up more, we could do it if number one, we get that infections, new infections, the Chinese would say you have to have zero infections for a month before you reopen. And then you have to test, 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 test. And you've got to test every day. You've got to test every frontline worker. If you want to, if in China, you want to go in onto a bus, you got a fever, off you go to fever clinic. Okay. You want to go into a mall, you're going to get tested. They're not going to let you go anywhere. I mean, and that, I mean, you know, not to mention the apps on the phone and intrusion, personal privacy, you know, and we're just nowhere there. And the CDC, they utterly failed. Now this is under Trump. So it's not just his fault, but they, they waste, they squandered six, seven weeks where WHO has test kits. Why didn't we get those? Can I ask you about the doctors around uh, Donald Trump? Because I, I, I have mixed feelings about Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks as they stand there uh, legitimizing some of his pronouncements uh, just by their appearance. What do you make of their, their, their role in, in, you know, kind of towing that line? I think they're, uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, I think, are two different characters, right? So I think Dr. Fauci, look, the guy has been around not forever, but seemingly forever. He survived multiple administrations on the left, on the right. Um, I think our country does need him. He truly is uh, a world-class expert in virology and in viral pandemics. Uh, I think that um, he, I think, has done much less of this legitimizing. I understand what you're saying of him standing there. I, th But you watch his facial expressions. You you can see him just visibly wince. And then when he's asked the question, he will he walks it back. Yeah. He will say, no, this is actually not true. And he'll say it in front of Trump, That's which true. is really important. Burks, on the other hand, very different. I you know, I find her quite the Trump apologist. I will say, though, that whole video when Trump was espousing the use of disinfectants to cleanse the lungs. OK, now we've had people overdose on disinfectants. I, just what world are we living in, Pedro? I mean, really. Uh, and, you know, you saw that that that. I tweeted out that video of her and I said, this is what Stockholm syndrome looks like. I mean, it looked like a hostage video. It was, it was stunning. And I'm watching her face and I'm thinking her facial expressions are exactly what I'm feeling. You know, I'm an emoji girl, you know that. And I'm kind of my, for a reason, this is how I am. I'm very emotive. And I'm watching that just going, he said, what? Oh my God. Like, ah, and you could see her just sitting there like, and then she starts looking down like, Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But yet then she will go out on the shows and say, well, he didn't really mean that. Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. So they're very, very different people. And, you know, I I, I don't know Dr. Burks uh, personally. I don't know what's going through her head. And so I can't really, you know, I can't comment on her motives. Uh, but certainly Dr. Fauci, I think, is somebody that we really need. And that's why you see the right wing, you know, with these hashtags, fire Fauci. There's a reason because they know he's speaking truth and he's speaking truth right in front of Trump. And he's trying to do it in a very delicate way that's science-based. So overall, I think he's doing a good job and we we need him. Has he made some mistakes? Yes, but I think that people have to understand when somebody says um, to a, an expert like, 
you know, Dr. Fauci, is this really a threat? He said, not right now. But people say, oh, he said it's not a threat. No, what he's saying is right, not right now today when we weren't seeing a lot of cases. What he, but somebody like me reads that and it's just like attorney speak, right? Like, oh, I know exactly what he's saying. He's walking that fine line, but tomorrow it's going to be a problem, right? That's really what he was saying. But well, um, I'm sure Trump's not very happy to see Brad Pitt uh, playing Dr. Fauci. On, on <laughs> That's a whole nother, nother. I wanted to ask you about the, the medical path that you see forward, because you talked about herd immunity. And so we have different elements. We have the testing, we have the potential treatments, and then we have the vaccine. So I want you to walk me through the how this works, because I have so many questions. Like the, with the testing, the, the point that you made about constant testing, people even talked about a paradox where like, if, if a certain amount of time has elapsed then you really have to test again, and then you you can never kind of test enough. And then second on the vaccine, right? I wanted to ask you, I can get a flu vaccine and feel good about it, but if I get the flu, I'll probably still be okay. Even if there's a coronavirus vaccine, if there's a small chance that I might get this nasty thing, I probably still won't want to go out. So how's that going to play out? And what, what are the timelines you have in mind for this stuff? Sure. So, you know, let's let's talk about the vaccine, and then we can talk about testing and sort of the medicines and how this all works, right? So first of all, there is no guarantee that we'll ever have a vaccine. That is the brutal, honest truth. Coronaviruses are weird. They're not influenza. These are different viruses. So there's some good news, bad news with this coronavirus. Unlike flu, that mutates pretty rapidly, and that's why you need a new flu shot every year, this coronavirus, according to all of the experts uh, that are really on the, the virology, microbiology experts, they're saying that the good news here is that we're not seeing this coronavirus mutate very, very much, which is great news, meaning it doesn't look like it's gonna change enough so, you know, so that if we had a vaccine today, it should be, you know, it should work for at least the foreseeable future. But, but the problem is it's a coronavirus. And when we look at coronaviruses in general, there are right now, you know, several human coronaviruses that already circulate that cause the common cold, for example. And immunity to those viruses is not great. It doesn't last a long time. So that's the negative side. Um, and I will say that there was one study out of China, again, from China, so I take it with a big grain of salt, and it needs to be confirmed. But they looked at people who had been hospitalized with COVID-19, the disease, the illness caused by this deadly coronavirus, and up to 30% of these hospitalized patients who then got better, they, they had a difficulty detecting antibodies in them. So it may well be you have sort of two sides of your immunity. One is the called humoral immunity, which is antibodies, but then you have cell-based immunity, which are cells that go and attack and kill. So it's not really clear how that's going to all pan out. So I just want to caveat that. Now, I was very pleased yesterday that information came out that the Trump administration really is pushing a Manhattan style project, which I think is kind of a bad name, given that, you know, we're not, this is not a nuclear bomb. We're thinking Same about here. A, right. Yeah. Uh, but basically well, Marshall has a better ring to it, but all right. I, I like it. A Marshall plan. We got a Marshall plan for vaccines. And this is something I've been calling for, for quite a while, which is look, uh, and I said this several months ago, back in early February, if we want to solve this problem, we, we have to take that rule book, throw it out. Okay. As far as developing vaccines and medicines, we've got to make sure it's safe, safe, safe right? First, do no harm. But otherwise, you throw out that book. So what does that mean? With vaccines, normally what you do is you test, you make a small amount of the vaccines. You first make sure it's safe. 
Then you see if it's kind of works, meaning can I, you know, if I inject people, do they make antibodies? Then you go to a larger test. Now if I inject people, is it safe? But also do they get antibodies, but also do they not get the virus? That's normally how you test a vaccine in, a clini in clinical trials. Then once you get enough information, then you ramp up production of hundreds of millions of doses. Problem is we, you know, we can't afford that. So I said, look, what they really, what we need to do as a government is we need to get all the top vaccine makers together. We have very limited capacity to actually manufacture vaccines. That's another thing that people don't get, okay? Is that it's not like suddenly it's really easy to make this stuff, it's not. So get them together and let's pick our top three shots on goal and go ahead and start making them now. Now, what's the risk? The risk is we taxpayers are gonna lose billions of dollars because one or more of these vaccines doesn't work. But the payoff is if one or more works, by the time we have the data saying, yep, this vaccine looks like it works, we already have doses made and ready to go to vaccinate people because time is our biggest enemy. So if we can do anything to cut those corners, we got to do it. So I'm actually, again, I applaud the Trump administration. If this is really happening, I think this is great. But I think the key is then if the American taxpayers are picking up the risk and picking up the tab for these, these vaccines, that means these vaccines are going to be freely available because we're paying for it. We paid for it. This is not, hey, price gouge. Do we reimburse these companies for doing the work? Of course, of course, just like any other government contract, right? That would be fine. I have no qualms with that, but there's not going to be this price gouging nonsense. We're not going to say, do you have insurance? That'll be a hundred bucks if you don't. No, 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 no. We're paying for it. We're taking the risk. I think it's actually a really good thing though, overall. We got to get that va the vaccine doses. So same things goes with the medicines. Then the medicines, the way they're used, you know, they're, they're IV medicines. Remdesivir is IV. Galodesivir, the drug I worked on is IV. So what that means is like, you know, their, their use, their utility is likely, it's not when you're critically ill people. Once people are in the ICU, they've got a lot more going on than the virus. Their own immune system is really starting to attack them. So that's a different scenario. That's sort of the horse ran out of the barn, but ran off the ranch, okay? Where these antivirals are very likely going to show effectiveness. And, uh, you know, remdesivir did show effectiveness in a what's called a randomized placebo-controlled trial where you're blinded, uh, the doctors are blinded, patients are either getting placebo or getting the drug. And then at the end, they look. At, they had an independent data committee that looked at this, uh, looked at the data, so completely independent of the investigators and of the company. And they said, yep, we see that this drug is working. Very likely where these antivirals will work, Pedro, is earlier in the infection. So people that as soon as they get to the hospital, it's not like they've been sick for 10 days, but they've been sick a couple of days. That's the earlier you can start them, the better. And that should hopefully bring down the mortality rates. Um, but unfortunately, it's not really going to help us control, you know, how many people get infected because they're IV medicines. It's not like we could use them for what we call post-exposure prophylaxis. A doctor gets exposed. Are you really going to hook up a doctor to an IV for five straight days? Probably not. Right. But where we, we do have some potential emerging medicines that I think could be really effective is taking sort of a page out of the convalescent plasma notebook. So convalescent plasma is taking the liquid part of the blood from people who have survived the virus, have antibodies, and then passively immunizing, if you will, another patient that is now sick with the coronavirus. So that can be helpful, um, potentially. There's some very preliminary evidence that suggests that this convalescent plasma it does have some activity against this deadly coronavirus. 
And it was shown effective, for example, going back to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic uh, uh, that that convalescent plasma works. So it's a kind of a, uh, you know, an old trick, but it, it, you know, can potentially work. Now, the negative is, of course, we can't bleed all the survivors dry. So now what, what, what can be done is to actually manufacture those antibodies. So you can actually collect the immune cells from survivors and then get those in the lab and then culture them in a way that you can start manufacturing mass scale quantities of these antibodies. China has reported that they've already started to make that cell line that can do that. That's a really good breakthrough. We've got companies here in the United States, biotechs that are really world class at that. I think that's going to be something else that we might see coming down the pipe is sort of like a manufactured version, if you will, of these antibodies. That could also be a really helpful tool. But really what we need is that vaccine, as we talked about. And the timeline, you know, the Trump administration is claiming they're going to try to have this available by the end of this year. Um, if that happens, that would be great, right, for American lives, uh, very much so. You know, that would be incredible. It would be, a, I don't want to call it a miracle, but it certainly would be record breaking. I think more likely, and, you know, this is what Dr. Fauci has been saying, it's probably more like a year from now, which means we have to go through that second wave without this vaccine. Because again, even if you have the doses available, then you've got to distribute them. Then you've got to vaccinate, you know, 100 plus million people. Uh, you know, in this country, obviously over 300 million people. And I, I, the Trump administration is not even contemplating having 300 plus million doses available by the end of the year. So I think, unfortunately, it's going to be quite a while. Can we talk about the longer term view and, and the success stories as well? So New Zealand basically has declared the elimination of the virus, which seems a little bit bold considering we're a global world. Uh, South Korea seems to have done a great job. Uh, what do those countries tell us about this new normal? And then on, on that same topic, going back to 1918, uh, Brazilians, Latin Americans went back to kisses on both cheeks. So did the French. Uh, I mean, people forgot the pandemic. So the new normal didn't last forever. Is this one different than that one? Well, I think that, you know, we're, we're humans by nature, right? We, we enjoy that human touch. Uh, you know, most infectious disease docs, experts um, really despise shaking hands. I would put myself in that category. It's not that I don't enjoy human contact. It's just viruses love shaking hands. So I'm the type of person I'll be at a meeting, you know, have to shake hands, you know, I'm cringing inside, but smiling. And then I'll usually excuse myself to go use the restroom. <laughs> I'm going to go hit the ladies room, pardon me, I'm washing my hands. <laughs> then I come back to the meeting. Uh, I, you know, I think we all relate to that now a little bit more. <laughs> I think you guys knew too much before we did, but yeah. Yeah. So I think there's that. Um, you know, I, I think that we are in this new normal, Pedro, for the next couple of years until we have that herd immunity that we've talked about. So immunity is when you individually are immune to that virus. Now, no one knows if you have test positive for antibodies, does that really make you immune? My prediction is likely, but it's got to be proven, okay? But no one really knows. Herd immunity is really talking population-wise. So to get to herd immunity and why that's so important is, first of all, you have to have enough people that are immune to the virus. So essentially think of it like, you know, the Heisman Trophy or the blockade like this, that that virus can't spread very much because right now this virus is very contagious. Let me give you a quick example. People describe this, it looks like R0, it's called r naught. That describes the number of new infections from a single infected person. So if I'm infected, how many people on average do I do, can I infect? So for influenza, that number is around 1.3, meaning 
Each person who gets infected infects about 1.3 people on average. For this coronavirus, the estimates are somewhere around three. So the difference between 1.3 and three, that doesn't sound like a lot, right? But let's do 10 rounds of infection. That influenza, R0 of 1.3, that first person infected leads to 14 people infected. That, that sounds kind of bad, but manageable. Okay, and we know flu is pretty bad. This coronavirus, R0 of three, not 1.3, but three, do 10 rounds of infection. That first person leads to 59,000 new cases. Wow. Right. So when we, you know, that's why this idea of testing, 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 so physical distancing is so critical because anything you can do to get that R naught down is once you're below one, no more outbreak. Okay. Germany was down to 0.7. They lightened their ease their restrictions. Now they're up to 0.97. Once you get above one, you are by definition an outbreak. So as soon as we let our foot off the brake with this deadly virus. It springs back. I, I had a question from a neighbor. It's very relevant. Yes, isn't social distancing the opposite of what you need to get herd immunity? And what are the conflicts there? It is true that as we physically distance, we're essentially what we're doing is we're buying time, right? That's the key. Buying time for that vaccine, buying time for new treatments such as remdesivir, such as the manufactured antibodies that are mimicking convalescent plasma. But also what we're doing, and everyone hears about this, flattening the curve. So when you flatten the curve, there's only so many hospital beds. There's only, even let's say we had a miracle cure. You show up to the hospital and guess what? Your 100% chance you'll be cured, which is never going to happen. That just never, ever happens. But let's assume that we had that. Like we had this magical silver bullet, you're, you're cured. Well, if you have this sudden rush of, because this virus spreads like wildfire, right? Literally spreads like wildfire. If we have, suddenly have all these people rushing to the hospitals, there aren't going to be enough doctors, nurses, hospital beds, IV poles. I mean, that's why this flattening the curve truly lowers the mortality is what we're trying to do, right? So hospital systems get overwhelmed, like we saw in Northern Italy, that mortality rate skyrockets merely because you just don't have enough ventilators. You don't have enough physicians. You just don't, the health care system, the ambulances can't get there fast enough. They're like, we don't, you know, we can't get to the house and then we have you in the ambulance. Well, there's no place to take you. So that's why the flattening of the curve is so important. And we saw that in Great Britain, you know, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who he himself, of course, suffered uh, from the coronavirus. And then here in the United States, Mr. Trump, you know, they both espouse this herd immunity, um, uh, just, uh, you know, errant thinking, I guess, if you will. And um, I, then they saw the projections coming from the WHO, the World Health Organization's top epidemiologist, we said, if you do this, you know, in the United States, we were looking at 2 million people dying, not right now, very likely, we're very likely right now north of 100,000 people, about double of what's being reported. Um, you know, so that's, you know, this virus is very, very contagious. So I, you know, I hear that argument a lot. I hear this argument of like, well, let's just open up. Uh, let's reopen the businesses like the billionaires want. But, you know, even in places that have opened up, you're not hearing reports like in Georgia of people swarming to those businesses. The restaurants, most people are still getting takeout from what I'm seeing of the public reporting on this. I mean, 70 plus percent, poll after poll after poll, say, listen to the doctors. We're going to listen to the doctors. When the doctors tell us it's cool in the gang to go out, then we'll go out. Because you know what? People don't want to die. And politicians, they can spin, but they can't spin death. 
Thank you for that. So I want to jump into a section of our uh, of our interview that we call the intersection. Try to have a little fun in these pandemic times. <laughs> All uh, right. Just, so a, a little bonus round, and then we'll let you go. I know you're busy. So um, so first question: Is there a person, living or dead, who you'd like to interview and have a sit down with? Be on the other side of the camera with. Interesting, because I'm on the I'm on this side of the camera. I've not been on your side of the camera. I kind of want to flip that around. It seems like that might be even more fun. Um, you know, I, I would say Elizabeth the first, you have a woman who was a leader 500 years ago, really was a scholar, um, uh, uh, you know, very learned, spoke multiple languages, well-read and an aberration of her time, of course, not just because she rose to be a uh, leader of a world power in a time where, you know, women had no rights essentially, but really was learned. I mean, you know, give her father credit. He he educated his daughter as all of his faults. Um, he did educate his daughter very, very well. So I think she would have been a very fascinating person to talk to and have, would have a very interesting worldview. So tell me about a book or some books that have changed your worldview over the years. And what are you reading right at the moment? Well, I'm reading a fabulous book right now. I'm actually rereading it, and I would strongly recommend it. It's called The Great Pandemic, about the 1918 influenza pandemic and all the mistakes that were made. And it's, um, you know, it's a horror show in many ways, right? We're replaying the same movie, the same horror show. And frankly, we've done it just in the, over the past four or five months. We saw the horror show in China. We didn't act in the United States. We saw the horror show in Italy. We didn't act. Right. So we're seeing this time after time after time. And now, of course, we're, we're relaxing lockdowns. What's going to happen? The virus is going to surge again. I mean, it's not it's not that hard to predict, honestly. Uh, but I find that book really it's tragic to read. And just, you know, look, we we humans are doomed to unfor unfortunately repeat history. Uh, a book from my past, I was actually I studied Russian in college, a little known fact. Uh, reviewers, I just said I, I speak a little bit of Russian still and I studied in college. So I read a book called The Brothers Karamazov, which uh, was a fabulous book. And I think the, the part called The Grand Inquisitor for me personally um, was very eye opening of understanding that really delineating for me as a, you know, I gosh, I think I was 17 when I read the book of that difference between um, you know, spirituality and religi religiosity. It was very eye-opening and very helpful for me. Great. Uh, some of our guests tie their success to a key breakthrough. Uh, if you could talk about a, a tipping point in your career and maybe tell us a little bit about uh, your your role in politics. Ah, oh, goodness. Well, I would say that, I, you know, I've been very fortunate to publish in Nature, which is the world, you know, nature and science are the world's most prestigious scientific journals. And I've published not once, but twice. And in both cases, it was having the scientific idea and push, push, pushing. And in fact, one of those publications is related to a drug, this galadesivir drug that's now in clinical testing. So this was a drug I was working with this company, uh, Biochrist, set up a collaboration with the Department of Defense. I've actually been inside of the BSL-4 lab. I mean, inside, inside. These are the bubble labs you hear about right? The walls. Big thing. I have. Now, this lab was not hot, as they called it. It was cold. It was decommissioned. Okay. They were cleaning it. And you go in this pressure chamber because it's a negative pressure lab, 18 inches, concrete walls, negative pressure chamber. And then you walk, then, you know, they lower the pressure. You can feel it in your ears. And then you walk into the lab. Um, I've actually seen the monkeys infected with Ebola while looking through the windows in, in the lab, um, tested the drug. So, 
Um, the drug was, uh, we were hoping to get uh, government funding because this is not a drug that, uh, you know, biotech can develop and, you know, it's going to be at your local CVS. So, you know, unfortunately for a company, you know, they've got to think about what can we do to actually make sure that we can fund the development of this, not from our shareholders. And the government does fund things like this. And we were having trouble getting uh, the funding. So I became a lobbyist, which I took uh, criticism for when I ran for Congress because I was I was a pharmaceutical lobbyist. Uh, no, I was trying to get money for a drug to treat Ebola. I started this the program two years before the big outbreak in Western Africa because I knew, Pedro, it's not if, it's when these viral pandemics happen. And I saw this and I said, look, the, you know, planes, somebody hops on a plane, it's gonna be here. And we need broad, broad spectrum antivirals for exactly what we're dealing with today. So I became a lobbyist, went to Congress, uh, and in eight days, I had Republicans, uh, all the key committees lined up. Uh, this is before I knew my husband. I just had a friend who was uh, a, a senior uh, a staff member of a named position, you know, one of the named uh, top Republicans in the House, had lunch with him and told him about what I was working on. He's like, oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, and then he's like, yeah, I'll make some intros, sent him an email, didn't hear back from him. Next day, there was that anthrax scare on the Hill. So you can kind of, and so I emailed him and I said, hey, Remember what I said, it's not if, it's when these kinds of things happen. 42 seconds later, I got the email, I'll make the intros. He did, and then I was up to DC that following week having meetings, it, again, eight days, it took me two weeks of meetings, and I, you know, I, got, I got the support that was needed because you know, these viral threats, they, they threaten everybody. Doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat, white, black, Latino, Asian, doesn't matter. This vir these viruses don't care, they infect and they kill. Thank you so much, Dr. Dina Grayson, for joining us. That was the interview with Real Vision. I really appreciate your time. Pedro, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's great to see your face, and uh, I look forward, hopefully, to coming back again soon. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film. We work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.